All right, so uh, so this is uh, episode 37B. I'm Tyler Smith. This is More Than One Lesson. Uh, here again with Barlow Jacobs of uh, various films that uh, go back and listen to 31, uh, 37A if uh, you want to hear more about that. Uh, so, Barlow. All right, okay. Hello, yes, okay, right. I'm here. <laughs> the, uh, the Oscar nominations just came out uh, yesterday, in fact. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, one of the front runners, although oddly enough, as far as nominations go, not the leader, uh, is uh, David Fincher's *The Social Network*, and uh, that it's it's an interest. That's what we're going to be talking about today, and it's an interesting film because for a lot of people, I think, because I had the same reaction that everybody else had when we first heard what it was going to be. Someone said, "Hey, David Fincher and uh, Aaron Sorkin are going to be making a movie about Facebook." And everything like, you mean the thing Facebook? Like, the website? Because that doesn't really translate out into a film. It's like making, hey, I, it's like Slinky, the movie. Like, well, what is, and then you discover, oh, it's about all the machinations behind the making of it. Okay, fair enough. But, uh, and I remember. The, the, the Slinky, the movie does sound like a, a wonderful starting off point for some sort of movie. I know. I really, I dropped the ball when I came up with Slinky, the movie, because now I immediately am like, what would that be? Yeah. I need to see it. Yeah. But, um, but no, it's, uh, and so I was actually kind of trepidatious going into the film, uh, when I first saw it, uh, back in October of, uh, 2010. Um, and then I remember really liking it. What is it? What was your initial reaction to the film? Um, I, my initial reaction was good. I mean, I really enjoyed that film. I mean, it was, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, Aaron Sorkin, I, I, like, I, he's, his writing is, it's, com, I can, I'm compulsively listen to it. Like, I, I don't yeah. know what it is. It, and it's got, it doesn't, I wouldn't say it has like a, like you, why, like, there's not a real, necessarily a real, I don't think real people talk the way that he does, <laughs> those people talk, but it's like, the way you wish people interacted oh, almost. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you ever watch the West wing, it's like, and I think, I mean, I think he's been pretty forthright. I mean, that, that kind of that show was the way he wished the government was, you know, and yeah. the way he wished, um, things were. And, um, you know, I think he, you know, he's obviously very bright and, and just kind of writes, I mean, it's everybody in his, um, movies seem to have a, you know, an immaculate vocabulary. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, which is why I'm not going to talk about the West Wing. I've already talked about it so much on uh, Battleship Pretension, but, um, but yeah, and Sorkin oddly enough is, is an, a writer that he is fun to listen to. There's no question about it. Um, I was watching Charlie Wilson's war the other day and there are scenes there that are just so much, I mean, He's fun. He is a fun writer to he is listen a, an to. He's an extremely to. fun writer to listen. And and and, and that movie was that. And all and most of his movies, um, I feel are that way. Like I, I just, um, yeah, he's, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I enjoy, I enjoy him as a writer. Um, obviously, I think David Fincher is like, you know, a master. I mean, I really, really love his films. And um, yeah, I thought it was, it was, it was really interesting. I mean, it was just a, I, yeah, it was just a good movie. It is. A, it's a very. It's the word I've started using the last few years is solid. It's a very solid film. I mean, right. it's not. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's incredibly groundbreaking. Um, no, yeah. But except it might be for a certain generation, because it attracted a lot of younger people that might not. And this is this is not to cast aspersions on on a younger audience, but they might not be aware of films like Citizen Kane. Or all the King's Men, or Nixon, or various other films, which Nixon is what is the companion film today. Um, they might not really be aware of films that have dealt with these types of issues before, um, and and dealt with this kind of theme and story. Um, so to them, it might be very groundbreaking. But also, I like the idea that a film that one could say is it's not really treading new ground, but I like when the filmmaker doesn't treat it as such. The filmmaker treats it as a, with, I, there's a real immediacy to the film. Like this is the most important thing. It's incredibly high stakes, even though, I mean, there's a big lawsuit that happens in the film, but as far as stakes go, they're not really that high except for 
personally for the main character. Right. And and I, I like that the film through... I'd say that's one of the reasons that the musical score is so important is because it really takes the inner the inner feelings of of Mark Zuckerberg and kind of puts them up there on the on the screen well not on the screen cuz it's audio but you hear it and you just you feel like there's always something something's about to happen it's a very anticipatory score and you know that something big is about to happen and that is that how this character feels all the time that he's about to achieve something amazing. It's really, yeah, I'm speaking very broadly, but, and very kind of abstractly, but the film, it could have been so straightforward and it's not. And I feel like that's, that's to its credit. Like it could have just been a very on, I think TNT or TBS, like 11, 12 years ago, there was a made for TV movie called the pirates of Silicon Valley, which is about Steve jobs and Bill Gates in their early days. That film's fine, but it's a made-for-TV movie, and really, it's exactly, in many ways, right down to the idea of the concepts of thievery and, and all that, and intellectual you know, rights and all that, um, it's very similar to The Social Network, but The Social Network, they treat it as if it's very important, and they treat it with immediacy, and it makes for a film that you just can't help but engage with for lack of a better term. Right. Um, and all the technical elements are, are phenomenal. I mean, you know, it's just kind of across the board. Everybody, mm-hmm. every, everybody's working at the, you know, at every, you know, at all levels that film's working at their, the best, you know? And so yeah. it's, 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 it's really cool when you see a collaboration of all those artists kind of coming together and with this vision and, and really doing it so well, collaborating so well together. So, and I remember uh, a lot of people, uh, a lot of my film nerd friends uh and myself we were discussing what what would it be like the fluid writing of an Aaron Sorkin that can sometimes be very expansive what would that look like as interpreted by the very hard working and efficient one one could say coldly efficient David Fincher right you know and some people said like it's not going to work, and in fact, they complement each other really well. Yeah, I hundred percent agree with that. It's it's a very it's very unusual because Fincher kind of kind kind of reigns in some of the some of the grander elements of of Sorkin's script, and you kind of feel like if a lesser director um, was in charge of this film, it might have it might've become a little too grandiose because as much as I, as much as I do like Sorkin and I don't love him, but as much as I do like him, he, uh, he does tend to speechify a little bit. Right. No, totally. Um, but, uh, now as far as, uh, some of the performances, because like you said, all the elements are there and the acting is really wonderful. Yeah. Is there a, is there for you, is there a specific performance or a specific character that kind of stuck out in your mind? Bill Gates nailed it. I tell you what, <laughs> um, get that guy to get on stage and play himself. Um, no, I, it wasn't any one perform. I mean, I, I thought J- Jesse Eisenberg did a r- really great job, and um, I just thought everybody was solid. I, I think "solid" is a great word to use for a film. It's just like I feel like everybody had a job to do, and they did it, and they mm-hmm. did it well. And I think the result of that is a, is a really great movie. And so, um, so yeah, but it wasn't anything that like super stood out. It was one of those movies where it wasn't like we, in the previous half of this episode, we talked about, um, woman under influence and you watch that movie and it's just Gina Rollins is like supersonic in that yeah. movie. And you're just, and you finish watching that movie and you're just like, wow, that was an amazing, you know, like it really, but this one, it, it was just no, nobody, one character really st- stood out and I would say if the one character stood out was probably Aaron Sorkin's writing, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, which you know, I think is generally the, um, you know, for better or worse, I think that's usually the MO. Like you're, you're always kind of aware if you're watching something that Aaron Sorkin's had his fingerprints on. So, um, which is actually one of the things that I've, I've always kind of been frustrated with by him as a writer is he's, it's like he himself is a character in his own, 
scripts because you you always hear his voice but that that really comes out in lesser things for example sports night i've only seen a few episodes of sports night some people love it and that's fine um but in that it all everyone you know it's kind of a standard cliche thing to say but everyone sounds alike now everyone all in in a lot of his films everyone sounds alike but and and in tv shows but the uh it's really up to the actors to turn that into their own thing and make it sound like make it sound like it's coming out of these characters specifically, even though it's all coming from the same writer who holds these characters up to an intellectual standard that right. requires that they all talk a certain way. But uh, and so that's that's the difference between Sports Night and West Wing. Sports Night, all those actors, they're fine. But there's not nothing remarkably distinctive about them. Whereas the West Wing, you've got Martin Sheen and John Spencer and um, Richard Schiff and Bradley all these Whitford, people. Yeah. yeah, and each one really puts their own spin on it to the point where it doesn't really all sound like they're all coming from one guy. Right. Um, and I I kind of got that with uh, the Social Network, in spite of the fact that many of the characters are younger, and so you don't get the varying the variance in age. Um, but, uh, the fact that they're all incredibly smart also helps. And so smart people will probably speak a certain way, um, especially if they're kind of Ivy league and, and all of that. But, um, but I think, I think, uh, the, I liked, I like Jesse Eisenberg because he's always been a really fast talker right. as far. I mean, you watch Roger Dodger and he is just going a mile a minute it is insane how fast he can talk um and he managed to because i remember some people said that with the social network he was just playing himself or doing the same character he always does and i remember thinking no he's doing similar things that we've seen him do before but for different reasons roger dodger or adventureland or zombieland or even the squid and the whale, he talks fast because he's nervous. He's he talks fast because he's it's there's awkwardness going on and he needs to fill the silence with something so he'll just keep talking until he can't until someone interrupts him. Whereas in the social network he talks because though he may be insecure, he's also very confident and he's he certainly is confident in what he is saying. And so he just talks fast because he's smart, he lacks a certain degree of social grace and he knows that what he's saying is right. And right. Uh, and so he he does something that's similar to what we've seen him do before, but for a very different motivation. Um, but uh, aside from that, Andrew Garfield is, of course, great. Uh, Army, Army Hammer is, is really wonderful. And I think that is maybe one of my favorite things about the film is that the, the twins who are, I mean, they're totally privileged – and in a lesser film, they would have been treated as sort of the villains or maybe like the comic foil. Right. But in this film, I they might be my favorite characters. Like, I actually feel for them a great deal. That they're trying to do things a certain way, and then it's just not working for them. Right. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I really think it's... I'm reluctant to say it's an actor's film, but the actors really like it, they can't be emphasized enough because that script could have seemed a certain way if the actors had not made each line their own. No, totally. Yeah, I thought. Yeah, I thought across the board. I think that's really accurate. And um, and even I'd say Jesse Eisenberg. I've heard the, a similar criticism of of that of him in this film, but um, and I haven't seen all of his films, but the ones I have seen, there's. He's, in all those other performances, there's a certain amount of warmth mm. that he has. And um, he's, you know, kind of typically the lovable loser. Yeah. And, and this, there's a level of coldness that he embodies in this film that is just, at, at moments, chilling. And, um, and yeah, I, I, I thought it was a really, I thought he was wonderful. You know, I really think, I mean, regardless if you, you know, you think the criticism is he's playing himself or it's similar to that. Like the fact is that what, whether it is or not, like it's what his performance served 
the purpose of what it was in this movie. Um, and I, yeah, I thought it was great. Yeah. And there's uh and there's nice little moments in there. Um, that I, I feel, I, of course, I mean, I would, I, I would, I'm reluctant to say that, Oh, it's Jesse Eisenberg all the way. Cause that implies that David Fincher wasn't thinking about something. Um, right. I think he's probably thinking about everything yeah. all the time forever. But, um, but there's a, there's a line in, uh, in the film where they have gotten Facebook has, has gotten $500,000 from, uh, not an investor, I guess an investor. And he's on the phone with, uh, Andrew Garfield's character, Eduardo, who's in New York now. And Mark is in California and they've just had like a big spat, like Eduardo, not even a spat, like that's kind of downplaying it, like a, a big argument because Eduardo had frozen the the bank account that they were using to fund everything and that could have made the site, you know, lose a day or something and then they lose credibility. So it's a big deal. But when, when uh, Mark calls Eduardo... And says, "Hey, we just got five hundred thousand dollars." And he says a cu- he says a couple of things. It's not just one line, but he says he says, "I need you to come back out here. I need my CFO." And it's and then he says, "Eduardo," and he says, "We did it." And the way he says, "We did it," but also the way he says, "I need my CFO," it feels it. When I first watched the film, I remember thinking that was a nice moment that he finally acknowledges Eduardo, Eduardo as the CFO. And he's saying, we did it. Because usually, Eduardo's the one saying, I'm the CFO, and he's the one that keeps saying, we. Whereas Mark always keeps saying, I. And so in that moment, I thought, oh, that's... Look at that. Mark is having a nice a nice moment in which he's finally acknowledging Eduardo's space. After watching it another time, uh, again, I realize, oh, shoot, he's manipulating his friend. Right, I know. Because the next thing that happens, his friend comes out and he screws him out of all of his shares. Yeah, you realize the the, the moment you thought was the warmest moment is actually his most villainous. <laughs> exactly. And it's brilliant because, I mean, I certainly didn't realize that the first time. Right. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was a nice moment of sentimentality. And right. in fact, it completely, it uses sentimentality to become even more cold, as you mentioned. Fincher yeah. um, is great. He, he's got so many... For all his strengths and weaknesses, I feel like, like subtlety, like he's just got some really subtle moments that just, that he kind of paints throughout all his films that kind of just add another layer to, to all his, all of his stuff that I, that I really love. And I think moments like that are, are, are what really make his films. Yeah. He is a, he is a director that you can return to. You can return to his films over and over and probably see something different every time. Um, I was watching the special features on uh, on the... By the way, uh, the two-disc DVD of The Social Network has great special features. It's got like, an out, like a feature-length documentary on the making of the film. And it looks like an incredibly arduous film to make because Fincher, notoriously... I mean, people knew about this about him beforehand, but... He just does a million takes of everything. Like he did 99 takes of that first scene. Like between uh, Mark and and his uh and Erica, his girlfriend. He did 99 takes of that. I cannot, I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, you're an a- you're an actor. If a director just kept saying, "All right, let's do it again" and then give kept giving you notes and like, "Let's try it this way, let's try it this way." Totaling 99 times. How would you react to that? Um, I don't know. It'd be interesting. It'd be an interesting experiment to see. Like, I mean, I in particular like lots of takes cause it gives you a lot of room to play with something. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it'd be, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'd love, I mean, it'd be, it'd be great. Interesting to try. I mean, I'm sure at some points like, um, I saw an interview with, um, Mark Ruffalo and he was, talking about going through, I think it was an interview with a, a few people who'd been nominated. And so Ruffalo had worked with him in Eisenberg, um, was it there, but also, um, Robert Duvall was there. Oh yeah. I think it was for maybe a Hollywood reporter or something like that. And, um, 
and and I guess in that moment was the first time Robert Duvall had ever heard that David Fincher did that many takes, and I thought he was going like, to have a heart attack, like <laughs> like on the take. Uh, they just was couldn't believe it. But um, I think both Eisenberg and Ruffalo said, it, it, you know, by the end of it, you know, it's actually really really reassuring because you know for sure you got it. You know, there's something in there that that's, that's there. But I, I imagine too, there's a level of um yeah i don't know it, it would be interesting i don't know and it makes me wonder if the if there's the expectation of does it need to be a little bit different every time because that's 99 different performances you're giving really right right you know um but at the same time as much as as possibly frustrating as it would be as possibly reassuring as it would be for an actor ultimately i feel like it's been proven to work right because I think when you do it that many times, a certain degree of subtlety can come out. You know, you could be playing something broad on the first take, and then around take number thirty, the broadness starts to go down, starts to go away, and you just start inhabiting the character, and you don't have to telegraph things. No, too. And another thing, like Fincher, also when he shoots stuff, he does a lot of stuff in um, in wide shots. Like he, I mean, he really likes to watch action play out like you, you know, like there's not a ton of close-ups and when he does use them he uses them with a purpose and i think when you watch his films you see that and I, so i think the reason a lot of takes comes from a fact of there's usually a lot happening on the in screen on the screen whether it's with extras or whatever and so um i think a lot of when he's looking at it it's like he's it's not just the actors it's like you know the extra who's like in the back corner of the scene, like what that person, I just think he's very tedious and specific and, and really knows what he wants. But, it, um, so yeah, so it's, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I guess I, I couldn't ask you, I guess I'm, it occurred to me a moment ago. I couldn't, I, I just asked you like how frustrating would it be and, uh, possibly burn a bridge. So, uh, no, you're <laughs> right. very excited to work with him. No question about it. Um, at some point, but, uh, yeah, it, it's, it, Probably the one thing that bothers me, although oddly enough, this is going to lead us into uh, discussing some of the film's themes. Um, one of the things that bothers me about it, and I guess this is maybe from a writing point of view, is the, I would say, almost the oversimplification of Mark Zuckerberg's motivations. Like, as far as we can tell, there are two things that motivate him the rejection by this girl at the very beginning and then the general powerlessness that he feels when it comes to final clubs and and so those things the like the sense of inferiority and rejection that he feels that spurs him on to be a success um that it's very clear at the beginning and and I'm kind of okay with that but when they keep returning to it you know, they, they return to it. He sees his ex-girlfriend at a bar and he wants to say something, but then she gets mad and rejects him again. And immediately that's when he says, we got to get more schools involved. Um, and then when Eduardo finally, when he finds out that his shares of stock have been diluted to the point where he owns, I think 0.03% of the company, um, when he finds out, he says to Mark, tell me this isn't about me getting into the Phoenix Club or, or something. Um, and it, I guess having to return to the motivations kind of bothers me because just like you did a good enough job of showing us what drives this guy. You don't have to keep hitting the nail on the head because for me, all that that did was show me that they've maybe oversimplified what drives him. You know, right. Um, I mean, as a person, like when is the last time that you could point to one thing in your life and say, oh, yes, that is what sparked me to do this. Right, right, right. You know, um, but that's, you know, that's <laughs> that's a picky point uh, for the most part. Um, so it, it certainly is, does not keep me from loving the film. And I think I like it even more now than I did when I first saw it. But um, the flip side to what you said, too, though, I, I would say is, and that's what I always kept on coming to is like how, I mean, not young he was, how young he is, you know? Oh, and, yeah. and, and, and so that's where I, 
those two motivations and kind of thinking about like, you know, when I was, you know, 18 years old and, and kind of the, how, I mean, he, he struck me as a very immature person. At least that's what, you know, came in and, and, and obviously very socially awkward, but, um, those things were, it, it almost seemed like, like they felt like they built a character who in functioning for the movie, like what, what, you know, in real life, I don't know. Like, I mean, I don't know that much about Mark Zopra. I mean, I don't even have a Facebook account. I really don't even know how that works. You but, sure don't. Um, so, so for me, it was like, I, that was kind of like my education on, um, Facebook as well. Like what, what it is. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I, I thought it was interesting to kind of point those two things that something could, I don't know that could point that, you know, that this guy would do something to this extent that you'd have kind of a, the, that simple motivation and kind of him pouring himself into it. I, I, I thought it was an, an interesting way to look at it per like how old he was and like what his maturity level would have been at that time and in, in building that. I agree. I mean, I think that it is, I, I wish we hadn't gone back to it too. And, and I also, I wanted to know more about his motivation in general as well. Like I, I wanted there to be a little bit more, um, I wanted to see, uh, yeah, I wanted to see behind the curtain a little more than we got to, but I, I, I think that was a, a conscious choice that both, um, Sorkin and Fincher were doing, yeah. but, um, as one, I wish that was a little different. I, I kind of wanted to know a little bit more about his motivations. And it's and and this is where we'll get into the the theme. Um, you know, it's it's an interesting thing because I think for for most people, I would venture to say, certainly for me, I don't know about uh, the case with you because you know you strike me as the confident type. Um, the just the sense of rejection and inferiority that I was mentioning, and the the feeling that like you're not in control of your own life. Um, because to me, one of the most interesting cause and effect kind of things is when Eduardo does freeze that account and Mark suddenly realizes, oh, this guy still has a little, has the power to screw me over or has the power to do anything. Like I thought I had the power, but it turns out this guy still does. And so I feel like that is the key. It, it has maybe nothing to do with the final club. Maybe it has more to do with, okay, well I've already surpassed the final clubs, but I haven't surpassed this guy. This guy still has it over me and that I cannot stand. This guy still has power over me. And so he thinks he can do this to me, put a freeze on this account and then take it off immediately. No, he can't do that to me. I will, I will get him out of this company. Like he, sir, he will, I will make it, I will rain down upon him like tenfold. And, and I feel like that to me is, is one of the big themes of, of the film. If not the biggest theme is just that attitude of insecurity and wanting to, wanting to be somebody who's achieved something, wanting to be important and wanting to be in control and the lengths to which a person will go positive or negative, um, to make that happen. Um, and I know, as I mentioned, I know that for me, that's a big deal. Um, and I'll talk more about that in a moment, but, uh, but as, but thematically would, would you say that that's kind of, uh, how it worked for you or is there deeper stuff going on? No, no. I felt like that was what was most fascinating to me as well as, um, we talked about a little bit before like I, I, I kind of tracking that was what was you know really fascinating to me about both this film and then uh, as well as as Nixon um mm. too so um yeah I thought those were two great um great films to to talk about to compare and contrast um you know, and it's and it's an interesting thing. Uh, I, you and I were discussing uh, before we recorded the idea of of putting maybe some of ourselves out there a little bit, and uh, and I'll say that for me, I'm somebody who I I thrive on uh, the approval of other people. Anybody who listens to Battleship Pretension 
knows my preoccupation with getting negative comments online um, and how that really, I mean, it, it really dashes me, you know, way more than it should. Um, like that is how I know that I am like worth something. If some, if people are saying nice things about me and it just like the other day, I just, for some reason, I don't know. I was like, I've been working on this project that I, that I don't say on the show cause uh, I don't want to, I don't know. I, I don't talk about it, but I'm working on this project and I thought, and the other day I'm just like, this is never going to happen. And if this never happens, I serve no purpose in this life. You know, I just like my mind, my, my naturally goes to that and just nobody said anything nice about me for a while. So everyone must hate me. And just that kind of my instinct is to do that is to is to value people's opinion of me and value very worldly concepts of success to the point where if I have not achieved that or if people aren't saying amazing things about me all the time, then I just feel like I have no significance at all. Right. Um, and so I relate to when I say when, as you mentioned, when we say Mark Zuckerberg, we're talking about the character in the film. I don't know anything about him. He might, this might not be an issue at all for him, right? But the fictional Mark Zuckerberg of the social network, uh, I relate to him a great deal. Um, he went and did this amazing thing, but it was out of not necessarily spite. There's some of that though. Oh, well at, at the beginning there's a lot of spite right? with the uh, face mash and all of that. But, um, but yeah, I, I, he does stuff out of wanting people's approval over not getting it. You know, he doesn't, his girlfriend rejects him. He's not getting into, into any of these clubs that, uh, you know, causes him to feel like he's less than them. And so he seeks out all this other stuff. And maybe if I define myself by this, maybe then I'll be accepted and people will know what's what. But I think it's notable that at the end of the film, he's right back where he started. You know, he's a billionaire at this point, but he's still just sitting at his computer puts in a friend request for the girl that rejected him at the, at the beginning of the film. And then is just waiting for her to accept it. Well, even he also gets even out, I guess he asked Rashida Jones character, um, out to dinner. Like he kind of makes an attempt to ask her out to dinner and, um, and she rejects him, you know? So it's even like, I felt like they really highlighted the fact that he is the exact same place he was, um, in that final scene, which was kind of, yeah, it was really, yeah, it was heartbreaking. It it was, and and I think it speaks. You know, to put these to put this in uh, you know Christian terms, I think it speaks volumes about somebody who you know is finds their significance and puts their you know finds their treasure in this world and defines themselves by worldly success. And it's like, well, you're never going to have it all. You're never, no matter what you think. Like you can have a billion dollars, but this woman over here may still may not want to go to dinner with you. Right. And at that point, it doesn't matter how much money you have. The only thing you'll focus on is the thing that you don't have. Right. Um, and in the spirit of that, let's transition into our companion film, Nixon, which was directed by, uh, Oliver Stone in 1995. And, um, I love Nixon. I think it's a great movie. It's crazy and it's overblown and it's bombastic and it's preachy and it's all of these things, things that I don't usually like, but for some reason, not only am I okay with it with Nixon, I love it. Yeah. I fully embrace it. Yeah. Like I, I lent you my copy to prepare for this episode. Um, and, uh, you said you really, you hadn't seen it for a while and you really responded well to it. Oh yeah. I, f I mean, it was like, yeah, I think, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 fl I actually probably like flipped out about it more this most recent time seeing it than I did initially. I mean, I remember really liking it, but then watching it again, I, I realized like, I mean, I love this film. Like I, I mean, even the technical aspects of it too. Like, I mean, just the, what he, all the different mediums he's using and, and the way, the way he made it, just the technical aspects of how he made the film. I mean, 
before we started, we were just talking about sound as a character and the way he uses all the elements of filmmaking in in this film uh, and all the elements of storytelling um, in this film were just really, really wonderful. Uh, Yeah, that was great. Yeah, he really, he's a, he's a director who's just, who clearly has a vision mm-hmm. um, and just his use of stock footage and his use of cutaways in the midst of speeches or even just scenes mm-hmm. and the fact that that's not really as jarring as it should be. Right. No. Yeah. And no, it's, uh, if anything, I thought it was most effective. I mean, he tends to do that in a lot of his films, but I thought it was most effective in this one. Um yeah, it, it was great, and and, it, and it, how seamless it was. You like you said, you would have thought it was jarring, but if anything, I felt like it made the story more connected. In many ways, like because he'll cut, you know, there'll be a speech of you know Nixon accepting the Republican nomination or whatever, and then in the midst of the speech, it will cut to as I said, stock footage of Americans shopping or bombs going off or whatever and you think of that and you're like what first off as i said that's that's not subtle at all and i usually like subtlety but just like why why is why is he doing that and why am i not more bothered by it and then i realized that he's a filmmaker and especially with that film richard nixon as a historical figure is like one of the most documented people to his downfall i would say right (laughs) his documenting of himself i think is a problem but um and so we so we even those of us who weren't alive when he was president um many of us have just collective memories of him you know saying i'm not a crook and talking about checkers like and just speeches that i don't remember watching but i know i've seen them right and and just knowledge of him as a person and as a public figure. and But our memories of him are intermingled with memories of Vietnam and protesters and all that sort of thing. And so by cutting to these things, he's acknowledging that Nixon at this point is more than just one person. He was an era. And this is what the era is. It's not just about him anymore. It's what he represents to us now living, you know, 20, 30 years later. Um, and it's just a cr- it's just a crazy movie. And I know a lot of people didn't like it, um, but I really loved it. And uh, I'm not sure if I'd say it's my favorite Oliver Stone film. I think JFK is my favorite. Do you would you say I don't know. I would have I would have said that before I watched this again, having watched it again i would probably say i think nixon actually surpasses it but i would say i think jfk is more entertaining i'd say so yeah (laughs) um but but i think purely purely for the the technical elements i think of of everything he was kind of mixing in there um making this i think just made it and and i and i think uh hopkins performance is, is pretty extraordinary as well so and about that performance, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it's extraordinary, both for what it's it is doing and what it's not doing. Because a lot of people made, you know, made a big stink about like he doesn't even sound like him or he doesn't look like him. And you know, when you play a real person, yes, it's imp- I guess it's important to evoke them, but you don't just have to do an impersonation of them. You have to find something at their core. You know, um, would you say, you know, would you no, say a hundred percent agree? Like I, I actually think it's m- more distracting the more the actor looks like the actual person. Um, as far as really getting to the heart of this, I, I think you can, it seems that like when we do a period piece, it's like, that's the most important thing. Well, do they look like them? You know, do they fit or do they sound like them? Mm-hmm. Um, and those are actually the, especially when it's, um, more contemporary figures that we're very aware of, like um, you had Ray, you know, and yeah. like, and, and that's somebody, Ray, you know, it's a, it's a figure in history that we're all aware, we all know of and, and know what he looked like, know what he sounded like, or, um, you know, or Capote, who was somebody who had a very distinct voice and, um, and look. Uh, so it's like, so we're aware of it. So that's what we want. Whereas to me, 
it becomes distracting because then it's like you're, I think as a, an actor, you're like, am I just doing an impression of this person? And if so, like, am I, am I kind of, is that distracting from the actual heart of who this man or, or individual uh, was? And, and so, and I think in the fact that Hopkins didn't particularly sound like him or look exactly like him, I actually focus more on who he was like, like what, what, and what, what is motivated. I mean, and I guess I could kind of get more to the core of who this man was and his motivation. So I wasn't distracted by kind of the external things and really got down to, you know, the nitty gritty. It kind of speaks to uh, those who listen to the show. Remember that in episode 10, I was talking about acting and the various levels of acting that it's a system that I use um, when I talk about performances and that some people would say that the that the goal of acting, it, depending on, of course, the genre, but by and large, the goal of acting is to not see the actor, but to see the character. Much like, in some cases, the goal of editing is so that you don't notice the editing, but you still feel the impact of it. Right. And so I feel like, yeah, just doing a straight-up impression, people can't help but be aware of the actor. Right. Um, and I feel like, you know, you mentioned Ray, and... Jamie Foxx's Oscar aside, I think he does a he does an a fine job, but he does a much better impersonation than he does characterization. Right. Whereas the next year, Joaquin Phoenix playing Johnny Cash, he didn't sound that much like him, didn't look that much like him, but somehow that allowed me, as you mentioned, to get to know him more. Right. You know, because if we're watching a celebrity, we immediately feel a disconnect there. Right. You know, um, but, uh, yeah, Hopkins' performance is, is just, yeah, just... It's heartbreaking. Yeah, it, yeah, it is. And that, maybe that's one of the reasons that I like Nixon is because you really expect... When I say Nixon, I'm, ta- I'm referring to the film right now. Um, you really expect Oliver Stone, who undoubtedly did not have a great deal of sympathy for Richard Nixon. You expect it to just be this scathing indictment. But it's not you actually it tries to get to the core of why this man was like this and in doing so kind of gave him as fair a shake as you could and ultimately he wound up being more pitiable than contemptible yes i 100% agree with that and and that's the same thing cuz you can, you you know and i think that's what made as a as you said i think a lot of times when with stone stuff it's very I mean, you know how he feels, you know, mm-hmm. like, I mean, it's very, it's very clear where he stands on, on an issue. Um, and he's got a very strong opinion and inject, injects that into most of his films. But what I think I loved so much about this one is that he, he, I think he does have that opinion, but he did, did really try, like he asked himself a question, why would a man be like this? You know? And, and then, and then he, tried to get to the bottom of that and and at the end i think really does a good job of showing you know obviously within his opinion of you know of this man of showing what how he got to from point a to z there and um yeah and and really yeah i i thought it was extremely uh sympathetic Mm -hmm. um but i i felt i mean i i don't i didn't like uh w as and it's nowhere close to as much as I, I like Nixon, but I, I was really surprised there too, because I felt like as much as big deals made of like, you know, I don't, you know, I thought he was really sympathetic. You know, I, th- I think he was trying to achieve the same thing with W that he did with, I think he went about it with the same roadmap that he yeah. did. Um, Nixon. I was going to ask if you, if you had seen W because yeah, I yeah. enjoyed it. I, I really did. I did quite a bit as well, um, because it's just, because there's no, what I like about Oliver Stone is that unlike some other directors, um, he, he is an artist first. He, he definitely has political opinions. There's no question about it, but he's an artist first and he's much more interested in talking about who these people are as opposed to merely what they've done and why what they did was bad. There's plenty of uh, there's plenty of reasons to there I don't know, there's plenty of documentation of what these people did and why what they did was wrong. What is more fascinating to an artist is 
the question why. And of course, with Nixon, you know, of course, thematically, it, it fits in very well with the social network because it's just that feeling of just constant, unrelenting inferiority. I mean, he just <laughs> nobody trusted him ever, no matter what he whether he told the truth or not. Um, nobody ever trusted him. And so, of course, this guy who, through no fault of his own, just the way he looked, just the genes he was dealt, was kind of shifty-eyed, kind of creepy-looking. And so to go against John F. Kennedy in a debate, and then, of course, he, of course John F. Kennedy won, admittedly by a, by a narrow margin, but of course he won. And... He just had the presidency handed to him. This is from Nixon's point of view, of course. Just had the presidency handed to him by his father and by the people with money, whereas Nixon had to f- fight and work for everything he, he got. And so you feel like he, he felt very much like an outsider, just like Mark Zuckerberg did with the, the final clubs. He so badly wanted to belong to this thing that probably because of his desperation to be a part of it, wouldn't have any part of him. Um, and he was just so aware of that. And and you wonder, like, is that the whole reason why he just wanted to be president? Because, hey, president's the most powerful man in the world, so I guess I win. But then, of course, he still wasn't loved. And, you know, and I remember you, you wrote some quotes down from the film that specifically spoke to you. What do you got for me there, Barlow? There you go. Doing my homework. No, it's funny. When I was watching, I did jot down a few things, um, kind of knowing what come on here. And um, Kissinger has this one line that's one of the, I guess it's the end when he's kind of, um, Nixon is unraveling. And he says, just almost to himself, he's like, uh, can you imagine what this man would have been had he been loved? And, um, man, I thought was by far one of the most powerful um quotes of, of the film and um and really put it in perspective for me and, and and um yeah and and you wonder and it's almost you wonder what had this man been loved would he have even been where he was you know like would he would this man have been the president of the um of the country because i, I you ha- you got that feeling they they definitely and I personally, I mean, I don't know a lot about Nixon. I know and politically, but not in his personal life. I haven't read any biographies or autobiographies of you know. Um, but they definitely portray him in the film as though he has a very loving and supportive wife. Yeah. Um, and that's not enough for him. It's it's kind of this craving other people's love for him but you wonder if he was ever if that was ever facilitated at any point yeah um on any on any level you know even just the way he was treated would have he have gone that you know what what point would have he just stopped and been all right with not winning right you know he makes that promise to his wife that he's not going to run again but then as soon as an opportunity opens up again he like dives on it you know and no. you can see that and um yeah. So, and, and, yeah, you wonder like, and, and same with, I mean, the, the funny thing was that it's like, um, in, um, in Facebook, like you want, um, you wonder, or the social network, you wonder if, um, Zuckerberg, if those guys had just asked him into their finals club, if Facebook would have ever existed, you know, yeah. because, um, and, and you just like, if, if, you know, this carrot had actually been, fed to the rabbit mm-hmm. you know where would these two men have been and where would our you know in the bigger scheme of things how would have these you know it impacted our culture you know and it's and what's interesting there's a there's a line that i'm thinking of right now when um it is it is when nixon says you know what i lost i'm gonna quit you know i've had it and then um a character whose name i don't recall but the actor is five finkel he, someone says like, do you really think he's going to quit? And he says, no. He says, why is that? And he points at a po- he points at, uh, I think Nixon's on, on screen and he says, cause if he's not this Nixon, he's nobody. And, and then there's also this, this other interesting 
attitude of where Nixon talks about, he's like, you know, I can't stand the losing. I can stand all the insults. It, I just can't stand the losing. And he says that, but everything about him, every choice he makes says just the other, just the opposite. Cause even when he wins, he feels inferior because people don't love him because, right. you know, and so if he lost, but people still saw him as this noble, wonderful candidate and everybody loved him, then he might be in a much better psychological position. But that's the thing is when the guy points and says, if he's not this Nixon, he's nobody. That Nixon is the one who's campaigning, always needing your approval, always needing your vote and will do anything to get it. And that's when you realize that he is and to tie this into the the you know Christianity again, he is he's only focusing on what he doesn't have. He wants worldly success, worldly acceptance, and when and if that's all you ever want, if that's what you use to define yourself, then if there's even one person saying I don't like you, then it will. It doesn't matter. That is the one person you will you will court them as much as you can, but in the process you'll probably alienate someone else. And then you're like, oh, I gotta get them. I need every single person in the world to like me. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, you're just setting yourself up for failure. There's a there's a great sermon. I've I've mentioned uh, Tim Keller before uh, on the show, but there's a great sermon that he does about uh, Haman from the story of Esther. Haman is the villain of that story and he's the pre- he, the the president. He's the king's like prime minister. So aside from the king, he is the guy, you know. Nobody can touch him. And yet and he's, you know, revered throughout the land, but there's one guy, Esther's uh uncle, Mordecai, who refuses to bow to him and immediately it's like I want this man killed. You know, and just, and you realize, oh, this is a guy who, who wants love and affection and acceptance from everybody. And it doesn't matter how much he gets, he'll always want more. And that is the, and I feel like that's the problem with putting, you know, putting yourself out there for the world. You know, the idea being that if we look for our significance in God, then it doesn't matter how many people hate us. You know, right. it certainly matters what we do. If we do terrible things and people hate us and it's like, Hey, God's on my side. Well, you should try to do good things, of course. But at the same time, like, you know, that's, that's really what it comes down to. Um, cause Nixon became president. Mark Zuckerberg became the youngest billionaire in the world. But at the end of the film, at the end of both films, they still, are very aware of rejection and they still want something from someone. They still want this thing. And so it's just like, well, if they can't, if they're unsatisfied, dissatisfied, I don't remember if they're that, like what hope, you know, what chance do we have? Right. You know, I live in a one bedroom apartment in North Hollywood. Right. Um, it's funny cause they, they also can't identify themselves with anything more than themselves. And I think that's apparent in both, both characters and um and unfortunately for them is that they're you know like within the the world's eyes they're both losers you know like they're 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 both losers and that's what you know and i think they would say in their own eyes that not, that's what scared them is they identified themselves as losers and the, and their motivation was to become a winner, you know, they both, you know, I mean, obviously and within that there's love and acceptance and, and, and all of those things, but that it's like, they were, they were wanted to do that. And they, and they saw that, you know, they saw their way out of being a loser was to win, mm-hmm. you know, to win at whatever they were for Nixon. It was become president for Mark Zuckerberg. It was, you know, I think just a thirst for, you know, success and within this film I'm talking about, like it was a success of making Facebook, you know, the biggest thing, uh, in the world, you know? And, um, and they, when they got to both those points, they saw 
and and I think the film's best success is that they were exactly where they were at the beginning, you know, and the fact that that um, that through all this, and, and also you just you ne- you never feel like either one of these guys enjoyed the journey either. Oh yeah, um, and, and it was just torn. And I think that's what is so heartbreaking. And I think even personally, I think um, something that I, I'm consistently running into is that, um, you know, as, you know, I struggle to achieve, you know, the goals I have for myself professionally and personally, um, I get so set on the, the achieving the goal that I don't enjoy the journey. And, and, um, I'm really fortunate to be doing and making a living at what, I want to be doing like this is, you know, it's, it's rare that you actually get to live your dream, but I'm always amazed at how often I don't actually enjoy it because I'm toiling so much to get to, you know, these high goals I've set for myself, you know, whatever those may, you know, I mean, I know what those are for myself, but like, and it's, and it's horrible because it's just that the, these long periods of time will go by and I'll realize, man, I, I, I'm getting every day I get to do what I want to do. You know, um, but you know, how often I, if I'm, if I'm not getting to that goal, then, um, you know, what's, what's driving me then I can't, I'm not enjoying what I'm doing, you know? And and then, and I've been fortunate to achieve a lot of the goals I've had in my life. And, and I think those have been great reminders of the fact of like, that's not going to be any greater satisfaction, Mm -hmm. you know, like, um, and, and it's so funny though, but even, and, and, and you are, so you immediately think that it's, an, you know, you know, you get caught up in again, it's like, oh, if I can just get to this point, even though, you know, from previous, ex- excuse me, ex- experience that it's, um, that it's not going to be that, you know, the true satisfaction thing, but it doesn't stop me from totally spoiling, uh, my next, um, you know, attempt at achieving that goal by totally getting lost at achieving, you know, getting to that finish line. And, um, and I thought both of these films did such a, were, you know, such an excellent job of showing the dissatisfaction of two men who set lofty goals for themselves and achieved them and how it brought them no, no happiness or fulfillment. And if anything, and then highlighted also, um, you know, how miserable they were in the attempt of reaching that place. And it's, and I think it's very telling that Nixon starts out with a Bible verse at the beginning of the film before we see any, before the fade up. And I, uh, took the, I wrote that down. It's uh, Mark eight thirty six. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? And, that's the thing is like, we just keep working for the world. We just want that failing to recognize that the soul is really what matters because that, you know, and a relationship with God and redemption of the soul. That is, that is who we really are. And that is the only satisfaction we're ever going to actually find because if you gain the world, then you need to worry about holding on to the world then you got to make sure that everybody in the world likes you. And then you got to make sure they're not trying to, you know, get the world from you. And then you got to, you know, break into a hotel room and, uh, and then you got to get impeached and all these other things. And so that may not, not everybody's journey will look like that, but still it's, uh, I think, I think it's, it's a very important message for Christians to, to learn because I think that even in the Christian world, certainly in the American Christian world, the idea of capitalism and success has kind of become intermingled with the faith to the point where success is, it becomes a measure of how well you're doing in your faith as well. And it's really just another version of materialism and, and defining yourself by something other than God and, and, you know, Christ's, uh, sacrifice and, and all of that. So, um, it's something to keep in mind, you know, and 
it's one of the things that I like about movies in general is they're like parables. You can watch them and say, oh, shoot, I don't want to end up like that guy. Right. You have a, you have a very clear representation of what not to do in, in both of these films. But, uh, but all right. Now, before we uh, move on, uh, do you have anything uh, else to say about either of these films or what we've been talking about? Um, no, I, yeah, no, I think, think we've covered it. All right. I think I've, I think I've, done I mean, there is nothing else. I mean, the it's world done. can say really, I feel like we've <laughs> kind of like the discussion in general should just stop here. Uh, no, um, no, 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 that's it. All right. Um, okay. So before we, before we go, I want to talk about a new movie that I, I failed to talk about, uh, uh, last episode, but still made reference to, um, which is uh, the film that you just uh, it just showed at Sundance that you were in. It's called The Oregonian. Yes. Tell me about that. What is that film? Um, it's great. It's a, uh, written directed by uh, Calvin Lee Reader, um, who has done a few uh, short films that have been at Sundance previously, which I actually was introduced to his work when I was there with Lo and Behold and saw his film. It was one of the most memorable films I saw. Um while I was at Sundance that year. And um, then we ended up um, on the festival circuit meeting and hitting it off and um, I've gotten to be friends and he wrote a role for me for this film. But um, it's about, it stars uh, Lindsay Pulsifer, um, who is a great young actress and she's, um, you may have seen her in True Blood. Um, She was on the show last season and Mm -hmm. will be this season. And, um, and it's basically, um, I guess, a, a woman in trouble, um, you know, and, and who kind of um, enters into this world um, and kind of just all hell breaks loose, you know, for her. And um, and it's just, I mean, it's a beautiful film with, um, I mean, it's gorgeously shot at super 16 like really just a wonderful washed out look and the sound design is amazing and um and yeah it's just it's a really to be honest it's a terrifying movie it's kind of um Mulholland Drive meets the holy mountain in the woods you know and um and it's uh and it's just why if you're you know familiar with uh Kevin Lee's reader and or Calvin's films like, and he does have interesting enough has a kind of a cult following even, even now. Um, I mean, they're, they're pretty out there. He's got a very specific vision and, um, and this movie for me, it it kind of redefined, um, weird, (laughs) uh, what I, what I view as what, what is weird and wild and creepy. And, and I think anytime you can have a, a film that uh, does something like that redefines something uh, for you. Um, you know, it's an exciting prospect. And so for me, I, I play kind of um, my character kind of functions similar to like a Shakespearean chorus. I kind of show up the beginning, middle and the end, and I'm kind of a, a somewhat of a spiritual guide yeah. for Lindsay's character as I lead her through this horrible world. And I'm sometimes helpful and sometimes unhelpful. Oh, um, nice. but, um, like the Cheshire cat or something. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm very, very much. Um, I'm even wearing a cat suit. Uh, no, I'm not. Um, but, but <laughs> sounds weird to me. Why weren't you? Hey, it could have been, uh, but, um, no, yeah, it was, it, it's, it's a, I mean, I, I highly recommend it. I mean, um, it's, uh, yeah, uh, it was a, you know, I felt really honored to be in that movie. Now, is it uh, is it going to be released uh, theatrically or on DVD sometime soon? Uh, they're trying to get. I mean, it premiered at Sundance, um, and so the, I mean, they're looking for distribution. But I know, per the buzz at the festival, there's a lot of um, people who are interested in distributing that film. Okay. All so, right. so I, yeah, I, I will I will keep you posted on that. But um, I hope I hope somebody does because I think it's a, um, yeah, I think it's a great film. All right, and uh, I will reiterate uh, the uh, the contest, I guess. Um, uh, Barlow has uh, been nice enough to donate a, an autographed copy of his film, Lo and Behold, which I've seen, and it is really wonderful. Um, and so you can, uh, if you email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com and say, hey, I'd be interested in uh, getting a copy of that Lo and Behold film, uh, I will put uh, all the names into the randomizer, 
and I will announce on the next episode who uh, gets gets the film. So um, it's very good, and so I highly recommend uh, you put your name in. It costs you nothing. It costs you an email to me, which uh, maybe that's pretty rough. Anyway, um, but yeah, so you can uh, find this and other episodes at morethanonelesson.com along with the blog, which is contributed to occasionally. Um, you can buy DVDs on there, uh, the films that we've been talking about uh that I've talked about on the show, you can find at the store there. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter, twitter.com slash more lessons. And I think that is it. Barlow, thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank all, thanks to all of you for listening, and I'll get you next time. Bye.